0: You're listening to WALT,
1: Homegrown,
0: Homemade Radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Sometime last year, I was listening to the radio, the Moth Radio Hour, and I heard a beautiful story by a guy named Craig. Craig. It was a story about his Mormon faith, and how he never quite felt like he fit in with the rest of his community, until one day when a bishop helped him reframe his understanding of what his faith could be. At the end of the episode, in the credits, the host said that since that conversation with the bishop, Craig had been doing some research on his long-lost Mormon uncles and that that process had been even more transformative for him. Needless to say, I was intrigued. (laughs) So I looked up Craig's email address and I got in touch. And for the last year, Craig and I have been talking about everything he's learned about his uncles and about himself. And today on the show, we are finally ready to share it all with you. Here's Craig. You can live forever,
1: or at very least, your name can. Because 20 miles southeast of downtown Salt Lake City, Utah, burrowed into the pinkish-gray base of a north-facing canyon wall of quartz monzonite, locked behind one of four 14-ton light-gray doors, at the end of a hallway 400 feet long, 25 feet wide, and 25 feet tall, in one of six humidity-controlled storage rooms, located along an aisle of steel cabinets 10 feet high, in one of 2.4 million boxes of microfilm, housed in a mighty fortress designed to survive a nuclear blast. Your name is written down. So is mine. And so are the names of my gay Mormon uncles, Brent and Larry. The structure that houses our names is called the Granite Mountain Record Vault. It was constructed from 1958 to 1963 by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at a cost of $2 million. The vault was billed as a single home for the genealogical records of the entire human family, a proverbial water source for the world's family trees. Into the vault would go all the names of every human who had ever lived an unending chain all the way back to Adam and Eve. Such an investment required protection. And so, the Mormons began blasting into the mountain from which, just a hundred years prior, they had quarried the stone used to build the temple that stood and stands at the center of their city. The sacred landscape of the Wasatch Front, yet again, bent to the will of a group who arrived as religious refugees in 1847. These pioneers... My ancestors claimed the Wasatch Front as their own Zion, and in doing so, massacred and displaced Ute and Shoshone tribes from the land. Or, as I sang as a child in the pews of my Mormon congregation while growing up in Columbus, Ohio, they found a place which God for us prepared, far away in the West. Homelands, it seems, rarely arrive without previous tenants. Ancestors and genealogy have always held a unique place in the Mormon imagination. Many Mormons, like my family, were converted by missionaries and moved to the United States following not only the call of American economic potential, but also to join a new Zion being built on the American continent. Today, most Mormons identify themselves as fifth or sixth generation, indicating the amount of time since the first members of their family converted to the faith those with backgrounds similar to mine go so far as to call themselves pioneer stock. To an outsider, these terms may feel inconsequential, but to those raised inside the faith, they indicate something. It's a mix of status and pride, as though Mormon street cred were a function of seeing who can stay around the longest. I've always felt the Mormon need to identify ourselves in relation to our ancestors reveals an urge uniquely our own. We plot our proximity to our pioneer ancestors in desperate hopes that whatever magic or grit or faith animated them might be found in us. Our history is our faith, and the stories of our ancestors are the guideposts we use as we chart our journey,
0: which is why I cared about my gay uncles in the first place. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. Our story continues after the break.
1: I don't remember how my parents reacted the day I announced that I would be singing Colors of the Wind from Disney's Pocahontas at an upcoming school assembly. I'm pretty sure they loved it mormons as a general rule are almost violently pro disney they love wholesome entertainment they love a prince pursuing a princess and they love a movie you can watch as a family in retrospect a part of me wishes my parents would have asked craig are you sure about this what will the other kids say something anything that may have instilled a moment's pause in my kindergarten brain but no Colors of the Wind was my generation's Let It Go, and I was going to sing. The pictures show that I selected a long-sleeved collared shirt in an aggressive pink and tucked it into my jeans. My bowl cut looks extra bully. At some point during the performance, I closed my eyes undoubtedly channeling my inner Celine Dion. I already knew that the sound is only half the performance. It's the acting that makes you a star. I like to imagine the other parents in the school gymnasium taking pause to consider the profound questions I posed in my prepubescent soprano. Have you ever asked the grinning bobcat why he grins? And how high does the sycamore grow? As I rejoined my kindergarten class, I was greeted by a chorus of congratulations and good job. I saw my musical future flash before my eyes, and it was good. On par with Celine Dion for sure. In my mind, I had just delivered a musical gift bordering on the sublime, and I was proud of myself until I got to the playground where a very large fifth-grade student walked over to me and brusquely asked Are you Pocahontas boy? I nodded. His reply? Dude, you're such a girl. I froze. Up until that point, I hadn't even considered that singing Colors of the Wind wasn't cool to everyone. And to my horror, my kindergarten friends who had just congratulated me turned on me. Everyone I knew started to call me Pocahontas boy. At the time, I didn't know what I was feeling, but it made me feel small, like I wanted to be invisible. It made me want to go back in time and erase the assembly that had just happened, unsing that song and burn the film with the pictures my mom had just taken. But even more specifically, it made me want to erase the part of myself that thought singing would be a good idea in the first place. It made me wish I didn't want what I wanted. The fifth grader had told me how I was breaking the rules. He did not say, you suck at singing, because frankly, I didn't. He did not say, Pocahontas is stupid. He said, dude, you're such a girl. The crime I had committed, apparently, was one against gender. My performance had somehow made me less of a man. And while my kindergarten mind could not yet have comprehended things like misogyny or homophobia, it did yearn for belonging. And something about singing that song had threatened my ability to belong with the boys. I didn't understand why or how, but it didn't matter. I was willing to do whatever it took to stop being called Pocahontas boy. Most of the stories we hear about queer people are when they come out of the closet. But I think of this moment as my going into the closet. We aren't born in there after all. Only by being declared deficient in some way do we discover the need for a closet to hide in. I stopped singing entirely, even though I loved it. I was horrified that any encore performance would remind my classmates of that song I had sung of what they had called me. I remember practicing how I spoke to remove an effeminate twang from my voice because I feared that it too might betray me and someone would be reminded that I was such a girl. I never wore pink again. Instead, I copied whatever my brothers wore, which usually meant baggy cargo shorts and t-shirts from sports camps I hadn't actually attended. I had never heard anyone accuse them of being girls. Most gay kids graduate the closet with PhDs in performative heterosexuality. It's how we survive. Only by mastering the system that oppresses us can we enjoy any moment of security, even if the price we pay is our authenticity. I hoped that if I kept up the act long enough, it would just magically transform into what was true. I threw Pocahontas boy into a closet in my mind and built a cement wall in front of the door, and I hoped never to deal with him ever again. It would be a lie to say that I knew my uncles well while I was growing up. Part of our distance was simple geography. I grew up in Ohio while they lived in and around Utah. But the sad truth is that I didn't really want to know them when I was younger. Most of what I know about them now, I've learned as an adult. I had more interactions with Larry, my mother's younger brother. And like many a gay man, his mother's favorite. I remember him deep frying wontons while wearing a white polo shirt, gossiping with my grandma in the kitchen. I remember sitting in a steakhouse hearing him describe the movie Moulin Rouge to my cousins. I went home and secretly downloaded the album on LimeWire, hating myself for how much I loved the album's cover of DeBarge's Rhythm of the Night. I remember his voice, how silky and soft it was. I remember getting into his car and being scandalized by the latent smell of his cigarettes. I knew he was not like the rest of my Mormon family, but what he actually was, was a mystery. Even as a child, I could tell that the version of him that showed up to our family events was less than 50% of who he really was. I do not know if he thought he'd be rejected or if he felt the need to protect our tender Mormon sensibilities from his queer reality. I imagine it was a little of both, an odd protective impulse in reverse that I sometimes feel around my own family now. But I knew there was more to him, and I didn't think I was supposed to want to know about it. My memories of Uncle Brent are sparser. He was born in Blackfoot, Idaho in 1943, the youngest of 11 children and also his mother's undeniable favorite. I call him Uncle Brent, but he was actually my great Uncle Brent, the youngest brother of my grandmother. The first time I met Brent, I was nine or 10. My parents would often ship us from Ohio for an extended summer stay with our grandparents in Salt Lake City. I remember Uncle Brent entering my grandmother's house through the back door. I had never seen him before, and thought he might be breaking in. But in reality, he had simply walked around the property to inspect my grandma's garden. Before even saying hello to my grandma, Brent declared, Your roses are looking thirsty. This is what I remember most about Uncle Brent. Rarely was there an interaction without some sort of critique, veiled or overt. He had a way of viewing the world in which those around him were always doing something wrong, somehow failing to meet his lofty expectations. He was the perpetual victim of our shortcomings. According to family whisperings, Uncle Brent had decided at some point to live a celibate life as a fully active Mormon. This meant he would not have considered himself to be gay, but instead would have viewed his homosexuality as a trial of the flesh, a condition he would have to endure for this life only, something that would disappear when he died and arrived in heaven. Most likely, he would have referred to himself as same-sex attracted, eschewing any connection to gay identity. I had pieced together that they were gay over time, following little hints I'd gathered by eavesdropping as other family members talked about them behind their backs, describing Uncle Brent as light in the loafers, and a friend of Dorothy. A few years later, I heard my older brothers making fun of Larry by calling him a pansy. When I asked my mom to explain what they meant, she turned to me and in a very nonchalant way said, Craig, your Uncle Larry's gay. Taken together, these memories reveal how consequential these signals about my uncle's sexuality were for me. Finally, I had a phrase to describe it all. A friend of Dorothy. Pansy. Pocahontas boy. They all meant the same thing. We were all being charged with the same crime. We all didn't belong in the same way. And they called it being gay. As soon as I heard the word gay, I knew that this thing my family whispered about was the same thing I was beginning to feel in me. Better said, it was the thing I had always felt, and that was horrifying. Not because my family thought my uncles were sinful or because the Book of Mormon says gay people are bad, which for the record, it doesn't. It was horrifying because they spoke of them as pitiful, hopeless in a very specific way. As though unable to possess the same level of love and happiness that they, the non-gay, possessed. They revealed that my uncles were gay with the same sort of whispered shame that they might use to tell you that someone had been diagnosed with an embarrassing disease. Always a euphemism. Always the brunt of a joke. And so, instead of becoming role models I sought to emulate, their lives served as blueprints of what I hoped to avoid. I was afraid of the very people who were most like me. How I wish this story was one in which I knew my uncles for who they were, told them who I am, and we rode off into the sunset, exchanging stories and wisdom in queer intergenerational bliss. But that's not our story. I never came out to them and they never explicitly told me they were gay. By the time I could have told them, they were gone. My grandma decided to euthanize the cats within minutes of learning her son was dead. Uncle Larry's tombstone was customized accordingly, Lawrence Robert Nelson on the front and buried with his loving cats Siskel and Ebert on the back. It takes a true movie fan to name his cats after critics instead of actors. Larry's funeral service would have led you to believe that he was a Mormon father of four. Ambiguous reference was made to the rest he was now enjoying, the plan this was all supposedly following. Is this how it will go for me, I wondered? Will I be put in a box, dressed up in white, And no one will pretend like I even was what I am. Six months after returning from my Mormon mission, I came out to my parents over a Thanksgiving break. I took my dad to lunch one-on-one. When I told him, he simply said, I am so sorry that you have carried this on your own for so long. He told my mom later that day, en route to a family viewing of, ironically, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. When she got out of the car, I knew she knew. I could feel the news reverberating off of her body. After the movie, we went to a family dinner. She hadn't said anything, no eye contact. But the next morning, as she cooked Thanksgiving dinner, she gave me a huge hug and said, nothing like that, would ever make me love you any less. They passed the test with flying colors. And while our relationship has been one that has required continued work, continued practice to understand one another, we've managed to stay connected. But even that pristine experience of coming out doesn't protect me from seeing reflections of myself in Larry's story. And as I got older and my life grew more complicated, I yearned for the wisdom I might have gained from talking to him about his experiences. But instead, we speak to each other through two tin cans connected by string, transmitting an unspoken secret held across generations. We whisper what we know, those things the aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews gathered for the funeral service couldn't really understand. Larry's funeral made me think of the vault, the vault of Larry's closet, the secret of his life, the vault he was lowered into and covered with dirt. I like to think of the vault as a symbol of something all Mormons are familiar with. There are secrets we carry in our bones. For every Mormon temple that sits on a street corner, illuminated at night, there are dark tunnels that have been blasted into our souls with secrets locked behind 14-ton doors, buried down hallways lacquered in pleasantly colored pastels. Belonging always comes with a cost.
0: Family Ghosts will continue in a moment.
1: The first time I kissed a boy, I was 22 years old and a sophomore at Brigham Young University. I was sitting in the passenger seat of his red Mustang when he leaned in and kissed me, and I embarrassingly and audibly said, oh, that's how it's supposed to feel. I felt like fireworks had exploded behind my eyeballs. After years of actively training myself to not want what I wanted, whether by looking away whenever I made eye contact with a boy I thought was cute, or snapping myself with a rubber band I kept on my wrist when I thought of other boys, I let myself have what I wanted. Love songs finally made sense. Poems came alive. I finally understood what all the fuss was about. I finally felt fully human. Religions, like closets, are rarely left in a single moment. It's a slow dismantling, brick by brick. Day after day, you carry two versions of yourself in a single body, hosting a battle that only you are aware of. And one of the more unexpected battlefields was my underwear. Devout Mormons wear a sacred underwear they call garments, The garment is meant to represent the animal skins that God gave to Adam and Eve when he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. In a symbolic sense, they represent the protection humans can enjoy as they follow God's commandments. Mormons wear them to remind them of sacred promises they have made to God about how they will live their lives. The garment is worn every day underneath the clothing and is only removed in order to bathe, swim, or exercise. It's made of a long white fabric, and on men, it looks like a white undershirt tucked into really long boxer shorts. Symbols are stitched into the garment that make it sacred, which means you can't just throw them away. But as my mom taught me when I was young, when a garment is worn out, the symbols are cut out and burned out of reverence. Prior to my two-year stint as a Mormon missionary in Bolivia, I, like all Mormon men, participated in a sacred ritual performed in Mormon temples, in which I promised to wear the garment for every day of my life. But, as I started to peek my head out of the closet, my new emerging self was pitted against my old, garment-wearing self. Most ex-Mormons have faced this decision. When and how do I remove this garment? What will it mean? Will anyone notice? Is there even a God out there who would care? On another night in that same red Mustang, my boyfriend touched my knee, only to discover the hem of my Mormon garment underneath my clothing. At the time, I was living in both worlds, changing out of my garment whenever he would come to pick me up for dates. When I came home, I would go to the bathroom and immediately put the garment back on so my roommates wouldn't notice. My plan had worked flawlessly until on this specific evening when I hadn't had time to go home and take the garment off prior to our date. I remember him looking at it, the same sort of garment he had once worn himself, And he said, Craig, I can't tell you what to do, but when I see you wearing that, it makes me scared that you will go back to them. The them he referred to was Mormonism. He was calling me out on my in-betweenness, not in a judgmental way, but with genuine concern. After the date, I remember going into my room and taking off all of my outer clothing until I was standing there wearing just the white garment. I looked at myself in the mirror and I had this moment of reckoning. Who are you? What are you? And what are you doing? And as I did this, I looked around my room and suddenly noticed just how much stuff, Mormon stuff, I had. It takes so much stuff to be in a religion. Scriptures, gospel commentary books, study guides from my Book of Mormon 101 class, artwork, souvenirs from my mission, journals, magazines produced by the church, posters and pamphlets. I owned a closet full of ties, shoes, dress pants, belts, suit coats. I had a small briefcase that contained the sacred clothing I'd wear inside the Mormon temple. And of course, I had an entire drawerful of garments. With my boyfriend's words in mind, the objects suddenly felt foreign, like relics of some past life I had lived or unwanted mementos of a horribly failed relationship. And while I had always viewed myself as a Mormon who was gay, I suddenly felt my identities switch. I was now a gay man who happened to be raised Mormon. Feeling foreign in my own space led to a spiritual spring cleaning, and I began to fill a Rubbermaid container with all of these Mormon items. Every time I encountered some item that radiated Mormonness, I put it in the Rubbermaid, and in a beautiful inversion of my own coming out, I put the Mormon Rubbermaid in the closet and tried my best to forget about it. The rituals of Mormonism welcome people into the Mormon fold. Baby blessings held a few days or a week after you are born announce your name to the congregation. At age eight, you are baptized and made a formal member of the church. If you are male, you are ordained to the priesthood at age 12. At age 18, you can become a missionary. At each step of your journey into adulthood, there is a ritual that marks that maturation. At each step, you promise to give more and you are promised to get more. But there are no rituals of leaving no predetermined actions or words to say. There's no un-baptism or de-priesthood. The assumption is that you will always move more and more toward the center, closer to the faith. And so, as my Mormonism began to crumble, I had another crisis to deal with. It wasn't so much spiritual as it was existential. What did life mean if it was not a giant test given by God? And the pain I was feeling as I left my Mormon worldview behind, what did it mean beyond just being painful for pain's sake? Perhaps my ancestors had something to teach me about this. In her poem, Pioneers, Mormon poet Carolyn Pearson writes how in their pursuit of truth, all pioneers must, pack the handcart again, pack it with the precious things and throw away the rest. Mormon identity carries within it a deeply practical impulse, a willingness to hold on to that which is precious and leave behind that which is superfluous and walk unquestioningly into an unknown future knowing that wherever you go, you will be able to build a Zion for yourself. As I came upon graduation, I knew I was going to be moving to New York City, and I had to finally deal with the Rubbermaid. The garments had sat in my closet for almost two years at that point. And still, I couldn't bring myself to throw them away. They had meant something to me. And even though I was going toward an unknown future, something in me yearned to acknowledge what they had meant. As I struggled with the question of what to do with my garments, I remembered what my mom had taught me. The only proper way to dispose of them was to burn them. I decided to make a ritual of my own. I texted my good friend, Katie and said, I need to do something and you are the only person I feel comfortable doing it with. She immediately responded that she was on board. We drove to Southern Utah where I had reserved a campsite just outside the entrance to Zion National Park. I spent the drive telling Katie just how hurt and sad and mad I was about Mormonism. I told her how I was so furious that this religion my ancestors had built had been commandeered in this weird way to the point that I no longer felt at home inside a community that my very blood gave me access to. I told her how I hurt, bearing the brunt of the pain of displacement from my own identity. The pain at knowing that I had to leave but not knowing who I was without the thing I was leaving, and my fear that all I would become was just some angry ex-Mormon person. I told her that what hurt the most was feeling foolish for feeling this hurt by it all. When I arrived at the campsite, I assembled the contents of the Rubbermaid on the campsite's picnic table. It felt methodical, as though I was cataloging evidence of a crime. I began my self-made ritual, the first ritual I had ever performed out of my own necessity, not fulfilling someone else's commandment. I started by grabbing the pink piece of paper I was given the first time I went to a Mormon temple. It had the words, Live Ordinance, written at the top. My mom told me to hold on to it to be able to remember that day. I tossed it into the fire. I took the white temple slippers, coated with soft bumps of rubber for traction on the temple carpets. I tossed them into the fire. I grabbed my white tie, the one I wore on my mission during baptisms. I told Katie about those people I taught, and I wondered how they would look on me in that moment in front of a fire, burning the reminders of my connection to them. Would they pity me that it had gotten this bad? Would they condemn me for being so sacrilegious? Would they understand that I loved it, but that my heart was broken by it? I tossed the tie and them into the fire. I took the letters I'd saved from the woman I'd written on my mission who I thought I'd marry, the letters I thought our someday children would love to read to know the story of themselves, and I threw them into the fire. In the end, all that was left were garments, a small mountain of them. One by one, I took them and tossed them into the fire. At times, the burning felt joyful, invigorating, empowering, like a big fuck you to Mormonism. At other points, it felt like the deepest loss and sadness I had ever experienced. On a deep, intuitive level, it was the ritual I needed to commemorate the life I had lived and to let go of it in a way that was meaningful for me. To leave something hurts. To ignite, flame, and burn also hurt with their own peculiar twinge of pain. But in order to arrive at something new, we must leave something behind. To leave can be to arrive at a life that has been growing inside you, albeit silently, preparing to finally, at last, come out. Leave is a flimsy word. Just like friend of Dorothy or pansy, it fails to capture all that's really going on. I began telling people I have left Mormonism. But had I? As I burned my garments the way my mother taught me, was I honoring or desecrating? Sitting in front of a fire burning my Mormon way of life, was I heretic or disciple. I didn't have the answer, but in my own way, I had done what my ancestors did. I packed a wagon with the precious things, and I threw away the rest.
0: A few years after the burning, Craig moved to Utah to live with his grandmother for a while and try to learn more about his uncles, Larry and Brent. And when he got there, he realized their story had only just begun. That's coming up in part two of Craig's story, next time on Family Ghosts. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. Pioneer Stock is written and told by Craig Mangum. To hear that story about the bishop, and more of Craig's stories, check out the links in the show notes for this episode. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. We used incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions. Family Ghosts is made possible thanks to the generosity of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get access to all of our episodes ad-free and exclusive bonus content that isn't available anywhere else. We wouldn't be able to make Family Ghosts without the Kindred Spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash family ghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening, and please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take just 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. Join us again in two weeks for part two of Craig's story, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.